in this region. So uh, although our hearts are incredibly sad that, that we're leaving and we're not be able to, to see what the next 10 years, 20, 30, 40 of the branch is going to look like, uh, we're so grateful that the Lord is going to continue uh, growing his church and his kingdom in Dahlonega through the leaders we have. So I just want to lay that before you. Like I said, we still got a few more weeks, but, but I really would just want you to believe me when I say, man, the best days are still ahead. Amen? Except for that. Y'all really, now that I, like, I'm out, I, I, I can say some things because uh, there's nothing. Y'all got to fix that before Stephen gets up here, all right? If you do anything for me, help me with the crowd participation. And I know we're in this gym, and it's like, so when we ask for affirmation, like, just be loud. Be loud and proud. Amen? Amen. See, Stephen, I got you, man. You're welcome. Here we go. Even if we have bad jokes, laugh at them because it makes us feel better. So uh, we're in the book of Genesis, chapter 32, uh, and we've been moving through like this mini-series of Genesis that's going to get us to a really long and lengthy series in Exodus. Uh, and and it's, been, it's been fun, it's been difficult, but we're trying to trace uh, what God is doing through the book of Genesis to prepare us for the book of Exodus. And, and as I was studying this text, uh, we had this, uh, I don't want to say an incident, but we had a good conversation with one of our kids this week. We've got four kids in sports right now. Uh, which is just joyful. Um, that's not true. So we've got two kids playing soccer, one kid playing baseball, one kid playing volleyball. And we were coming home from one of the practices, and the kid was just lamenting, one of my children, I'm not going to name names, was just lamenting that, like, man, like, I didn't have any friends on my team. I was really hoping I was going to go out, and there'd be a bunch of friends, and we'd be fine. But, but I really hadn't made those friends. And so our encouragement was, hey, listen, but it was first practice. Like, give it some time. It'll take time. Uh, but look for your people. Right, so if there's some, if you feel this way, that, that there's no one for you, chances are there's someone on that team that is kind of standing there and looking for a friend too. I said, just just go find your person, and we all kind of deal with that, right? Like, just humor me for a second, because uh, I've got a couple situations. I want to know who's who. So, uh, you walk into a party, you walk into a crowded room. Um, let, let me know, just you can raise hands, I won't make you say amen, which one of these are you? Uh, you're going to naturally find your person by the one that's standing by themselves awkwardly against the wall. You're just going to go slide right next to that person and stand awkwardly with them. Anybody? I mean, you kind of introverts, you're just going to walk over there, or you're going to go immediately find the life of the party and just start acting a fool with them. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thomas, for sure. Landon Sledge isn't here. Landon, for sure. Uh, the group of people in the conversation that seems a little too deep for the setting, you're going to go right to that group of people and join in that conversation. Anybody? That's, that's, that's probably me, right? Uh, the most comfy si- seat in the room where you can just sit there and people watch. Who's that? Man, look at this self-awareness. This is, this is good. Uh, now, this is, you got, God is watching, don't lie. Uh, the group of people that are gossiping, you're going to naturally slide into that and listen to the scoop of the party. Who, who's that? Oh, we got gossipers. God is watching. <laughs> Nobody? Hannah, thank you. All right, see? See? They were still kind of like, uh. Um, you're the by the exit door crew. So you want to stand as close to the exit of the party as possible. You? Yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, now this is, I, I've seen this before, right? The, I'm just holding my wife's purse, right? The, the husband that has been drugged to this party, I'm just here. And then we just kind of have a bond of all these men that don't want to be there. Like, okay, here you go. Fire me for this. Um, wedding showers and baby showers should be women only, right? This whole new fad of joining. Really? This, really? I've preached the gospel, and that is the first time I've had a standing ovation. This is great. Don't do that, because there's the men standing by the door, holding the purses, going, why did we get invited to this? If I offended you, I'm sorry. Did I miss one? Any other kind of awkward? So, so find your people and go with them. So as we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, it's been hot, hard to find our people. Like, we all resonate with Adam, because we all choose sin. That's what we want to choose, and, and so we're all sinners in light of Adam. But then we get to, like, Noah, who built a massive boat over 100 years for the sake of God and the glory of his name, I mean, that's, that's not my guy, right? Like, I don't have the faith that Noah has. And then we get to Abraham, and, and he literally almost sacrifices his son out of obedience. And like, man, I wish I had the faith of Abraham, but Abraham's not my guy. And then we get to Isaac, and 
Man, he's just so faithful and true. It's not my guy. But then we get to Jacob today. Now, Jacob is my guy. And I think as we get into this, we're all going to see Jacob is our person, straight out of his mother's womb. There's so many things relatable for Jacob to us that we can really lean in, press in, and learn a lot from Jacob. But the most important thing we're going to see out of this is not Jacob's character and how we relate to him, but God's grace and mercy and how he loves Jacob. And if God can love Jacob in that way, then how much more can he love us in this same manner? So uh, Genesis 32 We're going to pick up 22 through 31. I'm going to read this. I'm going to pray. And then I think Dylan said it last week, kind of the um, back from the future. We're going to have to go backwards a little bit and rework some things to make sure we're on the same page. Because uh, here we go. This is one of the most bizarre stories in Scripture. I know we say that every week, but like this, let's just start reading. Verse 32, Genesis 32, 22. The same night he, being Jacob, arose and took his two wives, two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. We're going to come back to that point. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, what is it? why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Uh, Thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. We pray, Spirit, that you would just illuminate this text to our hearts, that we would draw in this morning to see all that you did for Jacob, through Jacob, and, and God, what that means for us today. So thanks for your love, thanks for your grace, thanks for your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now like I said, Genesis 32, honestly one of the most bizarre stories, and we see, we see Jacob, this man, wrestling with what he comes later to find out is God. And so there's this idea within scriptures, it's called a theophany, right? Like a visible manifestation of God. And we see some of these throughout the Old Testament. And then you also have more specific of a Christophany. So, so not, not just God in general, but, but this is a physical manifestation of Christ in the flesh wrestling. So, or, or was this angel, angelic person that, that Jacob was wrestling with? And, and honestly, you read a hundred different theologians on this, and you're going to get 150 different answers. I mean, here's the short. We, we don't know who this angel, Jesus in the flesh, was it a theophany, was it God in the flesh? Who, who was this that he was wrestling with? We don't quite know. But we see Jacob's massive turning point when he says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So because of the blessing that he receives and the comment that he makes, we know that this is some kind of divine figure that Jacob is wrestling with. We also know, we'll get to this in a couple months probably, but Exodus thirty-three twenty says that no man could see the face of God and live. So this has to be some kind of uh, theophany. This isn't a true manifestation of God, and and we'll understand that more in a little bit. But but, but we have to lay some groundwork to how we even got to this wrestling match, because here's just the reality. You know how I said Jacob is our people, like we can all resonate with Jacob? Uh, Jacob is a dirtbag. I mean, just you, you start reading through the story, we will. He is an unimpressive man. I mean, out of the patriarchs go, Jacob's that guy that's like, Really? Like, like he made it into the story of God. I mean, we're talking Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And some of the things that he does and the way that he lives, he's just a low life. But we must learn, we must study, we must press in, because if we don't, we're going to fall for the same traps that Jacob did. 
If we don't see and understand and study the scriptures and understand how God fulfills his promises through us and in us and around us, we're going to fall in the same trap. Because we see this in the Exodus. We see this in Judges. We see this through David, through Israel. But we see this through Judah, through the Pharisees, through the disciples, through the early church, and now to us. That there's a trap for us if we're not careful. And here's the trap. You ready? Control. That we want to be in control. That Jacob wanted to be in control. And if we don't watch this, then we're going to get to a wrestling match. And we lose every single time. But what we'll see through this text is this wrestling match is a grace and mercy of God sent to us. So here's just kind of the big 30,000 foot, one paragraph uh, sentence that will help us kind of understand where we are going. Jacob the deceiver, after decades of doing things his own way, comes face to face with God in a wrestling match and has changed both the name and identity, proving that God's plans will not be thwarted, his promises will not be forgotten, and his grace will not run out. He's going to teach us uh, the only way to grow in our faith is to go straight to God with our worries, doubts, and concerns, not ourselves to solve the problems that we see. So that's what we're going to be working through in the text this morning. So uh, flip back with me to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, because we're going to lay some of the groundwork. And I know what you're already thinking. We're in Genesis 32. We're going back to Genesis 25. Are we really going to study seven passages this morning? Yes. Get over it. This is church. And I might even go 45 minutes. If you're new here, I go really long and people don't. Stephen doesn't like that. Everyone else loves it. Is that true? Just tell me this. All right, Genesis 25. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 because this is the birth story. This is the origin story of our boy Jacob. Genesis 25, picking up verse 19. Now, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Peta Aram, to the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord, his, prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, just stop real quick. With the whole plan, the whole story where the big points, the narrative of Abraham and Sarah was what? That Sarah was old and barren. Then we get to this next generation, and we see Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is also barren. And God instantly, straight out of the gate, solves that, performs a miracle. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? When so she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Now, this is a massive statement. When we get into Exodus, you're going to see this really manifest itself out. I wish I had more time, but, but we'll cover that over the next couple months. That two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is massive. The older shall serve the younger. In this day, this patriarchal society, that was blasphemy. I mean, there's just no way that that would ever work, that the older always receives everything. He receives the birthright. He receives the, the inheritance. He, rece he receives ev everything. If you're not the firstborn within this culture and this society, you just get nothing. That the oldest brother gets literally everything. And so now we see even before they were born, God is making a promise to Rebekah that the older shall serve the younger. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, the twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So there's, there's a lot happening in the story, in, in the text of what's happening. So first we have a miracle conception, right? We have Rebecca who was barren. She now has twins within her because God answered her prayers. And then we have, even from before delivery, there's just this stuff going on. And God goes, yeah, yeah, I know, because there's going to be two different nations, right? There's going to be two different groups of people. And Jacob's going to be my boy. 
that the older is going to be served by the younger. The older is going to be uh, less superior. Esau is going to be less superior, and Jacob is going to be my guy. Jacob is going to be the one that leads everything. And it just, it just makes us stop and go, okay, then God uses really different situations to perform his glory. I mean, that for us should just give us some kind of confidence straight out the gate. That if God can do that, then he can use me for whatever. Because God obviously uses different people for his glory. So, so there's a lot happening, but then even when they were born, it gets even more complicated. Because in these days, I mean, like you had to be a warrior. We, we talk about all the time King David and the incredible leader that he was. And, and yes, he played a harp, but he also killed lions barehanded. I mean, to be a leader in this day, you had to be tough. And so Esau comes out, I mean, with hair all over his body. He comes out with a beard. Like, you don't get much more manly as an infant than a beard, right? I mean, that's just miraculous to take place. And he grows and develops into this skillful warrior, this skillful hunter, lives outdoors, kills things, grows things. I mean, he's just the manliest of manly. And then we got our boy Jacob, who likes to sit inside and cook with his mama. And I'm not saying anything about cooking, but like, Jacob's the guy who never had a callus on his hand his entire life. So Jacob is the guy that's supposed to fulfill the blessings of God and the promises of God, but he doesn't know how to hunt. He doesn't know how to kill things. He doesn't know how to grow things. He's the quiet type. He's the reserved type. So anybody that looks at this relationship is going to go, oh yeah, Esau's going to lead this thing. Esau's going to take this over. Jacob has no skills, abilities in him to lead anything. He's just going to be sitting inside, cooking, hanging out. And so this bond happens, right? You've got Isaac loves Esau, Rebecca loves Jacob, and there's this tension starting to form. And this tension will continue to grow and grow and grow and really gives us the plot for the book of Exodus. But very quickly, we meet Jacob the deceiver. He's a heel grabber coming out of the womb. He's literally grabbing for the heel. And so that's kind of tongue-in-cheek for just a, he's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's always going to do whatever he can to get ahead. And literally, that's what his name means, Jacob the deceiver. So look with me, go down, uh, we're still in 25, go down to verse 29. Because very early on in their life, we're going to see this deceiving deception starting to take place. 25, we'll pick it up in verse 29. And when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. All right, so here, here we are, right? Jacob's out hunting, killing things, being a man's man. Jacob's inside making stew. Anyways, that's, we could say a lot for that. But, and Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Now, again, this is not like our kind of hunting where man, we, we walk out to the deer stand. We sit there for three or four hours. I've got a fanny pack full of snacks, right? I'm just chowing down. If I kill something, I'm going to get the truck as close to this animal so that I, the only physical exertion I have is to pick up the animal, put it in the back of the truck. I'm going to drive it to the processor. They're going to take care of it. That, that's not the hunting that we're talking about here. Esau's probably coming back in from a week or two long hunt. He was not like physically exhausted, like, oh, I'm tired, but literally probably has eaten, drinking in a week or two. Um, he's physically almost done. This is the situation that he walks into. And so he's begging his brother, hey, give me some of that stew that you're making. It, sound, it smells fantastic. And so what's Jacob's answer in verse 31? Sell me your birthright. Yeah, I'll feed you. I know you're exhausted. Sell me your birthright. Esau said in verse 32, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? His logic is pretty flawless, right? If I die, my birthright's done. So sure, take it, because I'm literally about to die. I'm so hungry. So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose away and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here we see, right in the beginning, there's this tension growing in them that, that Jacob is constantly warning what he doesn't have. He wants to be the firstborn. He wants to have the birthright. He wants to receive the inheritance. He wants all that is not his. And we see Esau that's just doing his thing, just running his lane and say, yeah, sure, take it. I don't, I'm just hungry. I want to eat. And this tension continues to grow and grow and grow between Isaac and Esau and Rebekah and Jacob till it all culminates in chapter 20. Now, just for the sake of time, we're going to skip over. I'm not going to read this. We'll just kind of paraphrase. Uh, but 
I, I would, I mean, just really all of this, 25 through 32, even into 33, spend some time in this. But, but it all culminates into Rebecca and Jacob uh, taking advantage of their older, dying dad and husband to give the blessing to Jacob over Esau. Again, Jacob's a hairy guy. Joseph must have been smooth. So they get some animal fur, they put it on him, they walk in because as, Jacob, as Isaac is dying, his eyesight is going away, and he fools him and manipulates him into blessing, or blessing Jacob over Esau. The whole time Jacob's thinking, this is Esau, he reached out, he touched him, his, that feels like him, I'm going to go ahead and bless him before I die. And all the while Esau's just out hunting. He's going getting meat for his dad while his dad is giving his blessing away. Now, there, there's a few things that we have to understand throughout this story. Uh, one, we, we don't understand what blessing really means, right? This is, this is a tradition that's kind of lost in us. We don't, we don't catch on to it. Now, but the other thing we have to see is just how much it affected Isaac. So even though we don't understand it, uh, we can see within this text that uh, verse 33, 27, 33, Isaac trembled very violently and said, who is it? Then hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it before you. Like, who, who was it? So when Isaac realizes what take, took place, it wasn't like, uh, okay, I'll just take the blessing back and, and give it to Esau. I mean, he shook violently because he realized what he had just done. Deceiving, theft, manipulation, a liar. There's nothing to this point in the text that shows us that Jacob is anything worthwhile. All that we know, from the beginning of the womb, he's trying to pull his heel. He's trying to lap over Esau. We see him manipulating Esau to sell him his birthright. And then we see him and Rebekah coming up with a scheme to get the promises, to get the blessing from Isaac on Isaac's deathbed. There's nothing good about Jacob in these stories. There's just not and so what takes place at this, this is where the story really gets going, because when Esau finds out about this, what's his natural reaction? I'm going to kill you. You've stolen from me. You've now stolen my birthright. You've now stolen my blessing. I'm going to kill you. And I, I don't know, but if Esau is the hunter that he says he is, I would take that serious, right? I mean, you, you better start running. So that's what he does. Esau takes off because of his mother warns him. Esau, uh, or Jacob takes off, excuse me, but Esau right behind him. So flip with me to chapter 28. I promise we're getting, we're getting close. 28, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. This is when Jacob's on the run, literally after he deceives the blessing, deceives uh, Esau, deceives Isaac. I mean, just a low life to get what he wants to stay in control, win at all costs. A lot of things that are really virtues in our society. 28, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. And he, being Jacob, came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. Sounds comfortable, right? Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land of which... So, so let me stop real quick. Jacob just steals, manipulates, lies, gets out of Dodge because he's afraid Esau's going to murder him. He has this dream in which God shows up to him at the top of a ladder. What's, what's your first thought here? If, if you're Jacob laying in the middle of the field, worried that you're going to die, and you show up and you have a dream, and God's coming down towards you, what do you think is going to take place? Oh, I'm done. Like my line, my manipulation, uh, has, my deceit has caught up with me. But this is not what happens. Look again at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, you in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
I mean, this is crazy, right? Like, like, this is the promised land. This is what we're studying in Exodus. This is the promise of God saying, all of this land is going to be yours. All of it's going to be your ancestors. Verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Wait, what? Okay, so here's a guy that is lying, manipulating, deceiving his entire life. He knows nothing other than lying, deceiving, and manipulating. And God's saying, hey, all this land is going to be yours. I'm going to bless you. Oh, and don't forget, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to protect you. Behold, I am with you, verse 15, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Remember Abraham, unconditional covenant? It's not dependent on you, Abraham, it's only dependent on me. And this is what we're seeing take place. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. One, one theologian puts it this way, human effort to reach God in heaven brought only judgment. We saw this in the Tower of Babel right? Human effort to reach heaven only brought judgment, while gracious revelation of himself at the top of heaven's gateway brought blessing. I mean, this is a point that Stephen's been hammering time and time and time and time again. We have to understand, we have to see the grand narrative of Scripture. Every other world religion is us trying to get our way to God. But what we see through the Scriptures is God constantly coming down to us, in our sin, in our depravity, in our lying, in our deceit, in our manipulation, God is still coming to us, and we see this in this dream. Even Jacob had done nothing to earn anything. God shows up in a dream and says, hey, I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to provide for you. I'm still going to protect you. This land that you're sleeping on right now is going to be yours for generation after generation after generation. Keep, keep going, though. I'm going to protect you, but you better keep going. Now, there's this whole long, massive story that we could really spend a bunch of time on, but we see uh, Jacob get to where he was going. Uh, his mother, Rebecca, sends him to her brother, Laban, to make sure that he's provided for, taken care of, but also go get a wife. And his Isaac, as Jacob was leaving, said, hey, just don't marry a Canaanite woman. Don't, don't do it. Go over there, marry a non-Canaanite woman. That's what you need, Jacob. And Esau hears this, and out of spite, what does he do? Mary's a Canaanite woman. Two kingdoms start right there in that moment. And again, we'll get to this in Exodus, but this is where the massive split begins. So Jacob runs. He finds uh, Rachel and Leah, loves Rachel, doesn't really care much about Leah. The descriptions of Scripture are just uh, somewhat bizarre. Leah had weak eyes. I don't really know what that means, but, but Rachel obviously had strong eyes. She was sharply and beautiful. And so Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, had nothing wrong with Leah, but just wanted to marry Rachel. And so, so he earns, he works for seven years. Laban and him make an agreement, for seven years you work for me, and then you can have Rachel. And on the night of their marriage, there's a mix-up. And Laban has now deceived the ultimate deceiver in Jacob. Now, I don't quite understand how this takes place. There, there's two options here, right? Because this is a little PG-13 running into straight-up rated R. Uh, but when they consummated their marriage, right? When they, are we tracking? Consummated their marriage. When they two became one, I've got to put my hands in my pockets because that's going to get awkward. Uh, I'm going to show some motions that I shouldn't. So when the two became one, that's when Jacob realized, oh, no. I, I thought I was marrying Rachel. I just married Leah. And there, there's two real options. One, Jacob could have been extremely inebriated, right? You don't have to raise your hands, but, but I'm, I'm assuming some of us in this room were really inebriated at our wedding day. You don't have to raise your hands. Or the tradition of veils, right, that they had the veil. And so, so Laban and her dad just said, hey, uh, Laban and Leah said, hey, keep that veil on the entire time. Don't take it off until the marriage is consummated, until two become one, then you can reveal who you are. So now we see Jacob get deceived by Laban. So deceived gets deceived, and this, this train wreck develops. So he goes straight to Laban and goes, hey, man, what's going on? You told me I worked seven years. I get to marry Rachel. I just married Leo. What, what's happening? He goes, oh, okay, no big deal. My bad. Uh, work for me another seven years, and you can have Rachel. Now, if you just worked seven years for something you didn't get, the trust probably isn't going to be there. But, but he does it. 
He does it. So he marries Rachel. Now he's got Leah and Rachel, two wives. Again, we'll cover some of this in the Exodus, but, but this is a problematic thing, as we can all imagine. Uh, marries two wives, has two wives, has multiple children coming out of two wives. And so they get to this tension now where there's been so much mistrust and hurt between Laban and Jacob. The favor's there. The tension's no longer there. And so Jacob just has to go. Jacob has to run. And so God shows up to him in Genesis 31.3 and says this, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So God is calling Jacob, Hey, go home. Go back to the land I told you. Go back to your family. Go home. Now that sounds great except for one thing. Anybody? Esau. Who's waiting for him? Esau. Esau's there. So, so I'm going to return home, but last time I left home, there's a guy trying to kill me. So God, are you going to protect me? Are you going to take care of me? And this ultimately leads us back to chapter 32 in the wrestling match with God. So he's postured himself up. He sent his, his servants and he sent a bunch of livestock and animals out in front of him because he catches word that Esau and 400 men are coming for him. Now, how would you interpret 400 men coming for you other than, oh yeah, my life is over? So he's got Laban behind him. He cannot go back there because that is the, all the bridges have been burnt behind him. And he, God has called him to go home, but as immediately as he crosses the river, he's by himself. He sends all of his servants up, all of the livestock up. Maybe that when Esau sees all that I'm bribing him with, there's even some deception there. He won't kill me. And here's where everything stops. Here's where everything stops. This is when Jacob is alone. For the first time we see in Scripture that there's absolutely zero way for Jacob to manipulate, to deceive, to change any of these outcomes. That Jacob is alone, all by himself. This, this is it. I can't fool anybody. I can't lie to anybody. I can't do anything. And we see this prayer and this promise. Look with me at thirty-two verses, or chapter 32, pick it up at verse 9. As he's alone by himself in this wilderness waiting for Esau to show up to potentially murder him, this is the thought that's going through Jacob's mind. 32 verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father and God of my father Isaac. Excuse me, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I might do to you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with my only staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he might come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, this is Jacob pointing the finger back at God, but you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So as Jacob's sitting there waiting for his death, he's, re he's remembering all that God said. He's saying, I, I have nothing else. I cannot do anything else. I cannot deceive. I cannot fix. And I'm reminded of how gracious you are, your steadfast love for me, your compassion for me, your grace for me. God, would you please remember, please remember what you said to me, that you're going to take care of me that you're going to do good to me, that you're going to make my offspring the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, please don't forget your promise to me. And so for the first time in the story of Jacob, we just see an utter desperation start to take place. He's, he's hit rock bottom. He's so desperate for God to do what only God can do. And then what shows up? What shows up? We don't really know. I mean, this is just one of the crazy parts. Look at verse 25, or excuse me, verse 24. And a man, I mean, that, that's how quickly it happened. Jacob by himself, and a man shows up and starts wrestling with him. Now, this is just pure conjecture. This is not, but, but I would almost argue to think he must have thought that was Esau. Right? A man just shows up and starts wrestling with him. He's already fearful that, God, that he's going to be attacked and killed by Esau, and then a wrestling match breaks out. 
in the middle of the night, you've got to think that he thinks he's wrestling with Esau. And he's fighting for his life. But what takes place? He keeps wrestling and keeps wrestling and keeps wrestling. Now, here's where we start to get some application for us. Because we see he prevailed, right? We see God reach out, touch his hip, hip gets dislocated. He's limping away, but he still prevailed. And we see this promise fulfilled, that he gets renamed from Jacob to Israel, which means he strived with God and prevailed. And this is where we get the notion of Israel, the, the 12 tribes. All of this, the story we're going to see in Exodus really gets much of his root right here in this wrestling, wrestling match. From Jacob, who was just trash, who was worthless, just nothing but a deceiver and a liar, a manipulator. But even still, God made promises and he kept them. And through this wrestling match, through this match, he will not let go. He is grapped on wrestling until he gets his blessing. You said this would take place, and I'm not going to let go until this takes place. I mean, can you just imagine the conversations he has with his friends? Guys, you'll, you'll never believe who I wrestled with. Who? Yahweh. No way. Yahweh. I just make sure you're with me. That's the dumbest joke I've ever told up here. For this day, right, for, for the original readers of this, th- this was madness. You're telling me that a man wrestled with the divine. And for us, this is madness. You're telling me that Jacob locked arms with God and would not release until he was blessed. But we start thinking through the lenses for us. This seems really strange, but, but we have to ask a question and consider what other options Jacob had. He could have done nothing. He could have rolled over, admitted defeat, and we would have seen his life come to a very quick end. Esau shows up, everything's over. So, so he could have done nothing, or he could have continued in his lying and his deceit and his manipulation and try to fix this solution instead of having full and utter dependence on God to do what God said he was going to do. Now, John Bloom, who's a writer for Desiring God, has really helped me think through this and, and get some good, helpful gospel lenses on it. And here's what he says as we start transitioning to, to us. Here's what he said. What do you really need from God right now? Because for Jacob, it's, it's clear. He needed his life spared. And if God did not show up, his life was over. So Bloom says, what do you really need from God right now? What blessing do you want from him? And here's the question. How badly do you want it? What do you really need from God right now? What blessing do you want and how badly do you want it? Because we see the desperation of Jacob in this wrestling match not letting go until God answers that prayer. Jacob began the night dreading Esau's arrival. He was full of fear and desperation, but he ended the night of struggle with God's blessing and a renewed faith. So, so what we don't get taught in VBS growing up and what we don't get taught from pulpits, what we don't really have this framework to understand is this right here, that it is a good and right thing for us to grab hold to God our Father and not let go till he answers us. I would dare to say none of us pray prayers that way. God, if, if you would do it, okay. But if not, none of us struggle and wrestle like Jacob did, not letting go, refusing to let go until God answers and hears our prayer. God will meet you in your anguish, fear, and uncertainty. And in this moment where you clearly know, God, I need you to show up in this way, he's going to meet us there, but he's not going to meet us in the way that we expect or that we desire. God's going to show up in the most unique and probably frustrating circumstance for us, for our good. Because again, who would that make us? If God shows up, shows up exactly how we want him, when we want him, and how we want him, then we're the deceiver and the manipulator. Then we're God, not him. But church, God shows up. Again, Jacob's ladder, God comes to Jacob where did this man even come from? God came. God pursued. And Jacob struggled. 
Jacob wrestled because he knew two things. He had no other option. Us as Americans in this church, we have many other options. We've got friends with money. We've got other friends with resources. We've got different plans. We can do plan A. We can do plan B. We can take care of this ourselves. God, I don't, I don't want to bother you with this blessing that I really need, with this problem that I really have. I'll, I will solve this on my own, God. I'm, I'm not going to bother you with that. But there's going to come a point, and please hear me, look at me, that that's not going to work. There's going to come a point in our lives where we are so desperate that we're sitting alone by ourselves. We can't go behind us because that's Laban, and we can't go forward because that's impending death, and we're stuck. And in that moment when God shows up and the wrestling match consumes, what is your prayer? What is your blessing? What does your grip look like? How fast are you holding on to him? So he comes with true desperation. But here's the other part that I just think we're lacking in, that Jacob knew that God could solve it. I mean, if you're a parent, you understand this. Even on the car ride to church this morning, it was happening. My son was asking me the same question over and over and over again. And you know why? Because he really thought that I had the answer. He would not contend with me and plead with me and ask me this question. I really didn't even know. But I'm his dad, and he thinks that I know everything. And I can solve this for him. So he's going to continue to ask because he knows that I can solve it. Are we not struggling and wrestling with God in prayer in our lives because we truly don't think that God can fix anything? Is that the point that we are in? Is that the main idea we need to take away from Jacob? That we're not desperate enough and we're not faithful enough to think that God can actually do what he says he can do. That if he says, don't worry, I'm in control, we go, ah, I don't know that I believe that. I'll take care of it. Now, now we would never functionally say that, but let's examine each other's prayer lives, shall we? What is it that we're praying over and over and over again, saying, God, if you don't fix this, it's not going to be fixed. God, if you don't show up in this situation, it's not going to be solved. And I'm embarrassed to say I don't have many of those prayers. I'm not pleading with the Lord like he's the only solution. Why? Because I'm not desperate enough and I don't have enough faith. So we look at Jacob and go, yeah, he's a dirtbag. He's one of my people. But man, when it came to this point, he struggled and wrestled and would not relent because he knew, he knew that God would show up, that God could bless him. And it was quick for us to go, yeah, yeah, but, but Gabe, that was Old Testament. Okay, let's go to Luke 11. Because Jesus instructs us to pray in this exact manner. Jesus instructs us to grab hold to the Godhead and not let go. To be desperate enough and to trust him enough, have enough faith that he can solve the problem. Luke 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at night, at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, one of the most embarrassing things in Jewish culture in this day is to have nothing to offer guests when they show up. That's just humiliating. Hospitality was a massive thing for them. Verse 7, and he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. This is one massive bed, everyone's in there together, if I get up, everyone's up. I don't know if you have kids, but if you wake up a kid at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're up. Like They're like a puppy just looking at you the rest of the night. So he's going, leave me alone, I'm not dealing with this, I'm not going to help you. Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything, verse 8. I tell you though. He will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because he will not stop asking because this man is desperate at the door, knocking and knocking and knocking until finally this man in bed says, all right, if you will just go away, I'll get up. And I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. 
What father among you, if a son asks for a fish and said, will give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The problem is not that God does not want to bless us. He does. The problem is that we are, uh, have a complete inability and lack of faith to grab hold and keep struggling, keep wrestling, keep knocking, keep asking until those doors are open for us. Now, please, I, I'm, I'm not preaching this prosperity gospel stuff. I'm not saying keep praying until you get that Bentley. That's That's absurd. But I am saying God wants to bless, he wants to give, he wants to provide. We're just not asking. That we're not desperate enough. And we don't truly believe that God can show up even if we are desperate enough. So we're going to go find our own solutions and our own ways, and we're not asking. So to go back to the question we asked a minute ago from John Bloom, what do you really need from God right now? What blessing do you want from him and how badly do you want it? How badly do you want God to show up and solve the solution in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships that you've tried and fought and just can't? But please don't miss this point. Don't forget about the hip. Don't forget that even at the end of this, God still broke his hip. That Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. So when God shows up, And when he answers this plea, when you finally wrestle him and stay fast and say, I'm not letting you go. I'm going to keep knocking until you get out of bed. I'm going to keep pleading until you bless me like you said you would. I'm not letting go. When he finally answers, do not be surprised when your hip gets popped out. Do not be surprised where there's going to be some struggle and turmoil for the rest of your life. Grace, or this is another box quote, God even afflicted Jacob with a debilitating injury. This had the effect of making Jacob even more vulnerable to Esau, forcing Jacob's faith to be more fully rest on God and not himself. If necessary, God will cause us to limp to increase our faith. If necessary. If you're not desperate enough, God will make you desperate to increase your faith, to grow in your faith. And we see the same notion for Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians, you don't have to flip there, I'll read it real quick. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So keep to me, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because all this greatness of surpassing revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So out of this wrestling match, you might get a thorn in the flesh. Out of this season of struggle and prayer, pleading with God to show up, you might get a thorn in the flesh, you might get a broken hip. But all of this is for our good. All of this is leading us deeper into faith. The wrestle, grabbing hold of God until you get an answer, doesn't mean you'll get the answer that you want. It does not mean that you'll get out of there with no injury. But... It means that God will answer you and will deepen your faith forever. And we've all, I mean, if you've walked with the Lord long enough, you've been wounded pretty deeply. And in the moment, some of us handle it better than others, but in the moment, we lament and we hate that wounding. And we doubt why God would ever do that to us. But pretty quickly, soon after, we start to realize, man, that was the best thing for me. If it wasn't for that hip, Jacob could have fought Esau. If it wasn't that thorn in the flesh, then Paul would have continued preaching out of his own power. We need that injury to keep us humble and keep us desperate and keep us hungry. So, so let me kind of lay in the plane with some of us and we'll, we'll get some communion together so we can wrestle through some of this. Because maybe this morning you're one that's not desperate enough. Your, ben- your deceiving ways are still benefiting you that your manipulation is still winning, that you can fix the situation by yourself. You've never come to a Jacob moment alone with no solutions to your problem. It's it's just as a pastoral plea as I can. Take heed because it's coming. 
And this isn't a punishment for you. This is God's grace for you. God's grace and kindness is going to lead you to a season of aloneness with no deception, manipulation, or lying can get you out of it. So prepare yourself. Get ready for this because it's coming. But maybe you're aware of your need. If, if I could just pull you aside and say, hey, uh, what is the biggest thing you're praying for right now? Like, like what are you most fearful of? What, what are you most afraid of? I mean, that can, that, you can rattle that off so quick. What, what's your biggest fear? Oh, I got it. It's, it's parenting. Oh, I got it. It's, it's my marriage. I don't trust God with my future. Man, can I show you my bank account? Because I don't know how this is going to work. I mean, I mean, you can rattle this stuff off quickly but you're still in the season of lying, manipulating, deceiving yourself to think that you can fix that. That all I need is just a better program. That all I need is just, just a little bit more counsel. All I need is just a little bit, all I need is, I don't, I don't really need to bother God with this yet because I, I can still fix this. Give me a little bit of time. My prayer for you is that we see this text this morning and go, no, 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 a little bit more time is not what you need. You need to start knocking. You need to start wrestling. You need to start pleading. And then God will show up. And then lastly, maybe I can end with this one. Maybe, maybe you've misunderstood your hip pain. Maybe you've misunderstood the thorn in your flesh. Maybe, maybe God has given something to you out of a season of wrestling and struggle that you wish he wouldn't have. And maybe you view this as just frustration and anger and pent-up. God, if you actually loved me, then why would you do this to me? God, how are you going to use this for your glory? Maybe, maybe there's situations in your home and in your life where you hate the fact that you have a hip that's out. That you hate the fact that you have a thorn in the flesh. And for you, I'll just plead with you in the text. That is a good, right thing that God has given us to make us more dependent, to make the struggle greater, to make the wrestling match more real for us. That if we did not have the blown out hip, then we could win. If we did not have the thorn in the flesh, then it would be our win. It would be our victory. That God has given us these things to live in us, to hold us back, so that we would be more and more dependent on Him. Do not despise those things that make you cry out to your dad. Do not lament those things that deepen the relationship with your Father. Hold fast to those things. Lean into those things. The story of Jacob is plagued with Jacob doing his best with doing things in his own strength and own power. The story of my life is plagued and littered with doing things in my own strength and my own power. Anybody else? But this doesn't mean that we let go and let God. This means that we grab hold and do not let go and do not relent until God answers us. This means we wrestle with him, we plead with him, we ask him, struggle with him, put yourself in a position that if he does not come through, then our life is over. That's what we do. So as we prepare for communion, what is it? What is the the wrestling match that you need to enter into today? that you finally get to a point of desperation, of loneliness, you finally get to a point where I cannot fix this, and we see the heart of the Father that desires for us to come running to him, not plead and beg until he answers. That's the God that we serve, that comes to us. So what is it? Maybe it's, maybe it's a lost friend. Maybe it's a friend that you're, you know is going to die and go to hell, and man, you're bothered by that but we're not pleading with the Lord to save them. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a question of future. Maybe it's a marital issue. What what is it that we're going to commit to today? We're entering into the wrestle. We're entering into the struggle. We're entering into the fight, and we're not letting go until you answer us. Listen, we just came out of this season, my wife and I, pleading with God to give us an answer. And what we've learned through that is just a deeper level of intimacy with our Father. So grab hold, ask, and plead. Because God has an answer. It's not our timeline. I can guarantee it's not going to be what we want. And I can guarantee we're going to walk out with a limp. But it's the best thing for us. 
So I'm going to read for us uh, 1 Corinthians 11, just the instructions for communion. And here, here's what I want us to be considering as we see this. We, we talk about God showing up and, and wounding us for his glory and for our faith. I mean, we look to none other than the cross of Jesus Christ. That God showed up in the most unpredictable way to purchase salvation for us. He could chose any means possible, but what does he do? He sends Christ on the cross for us. And if he does that, if his love for us does that, then I can guarantee if we lock on and wrestle with him, he will answer our prayers. So 1 Corinthians 11, pick it up, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is for the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and of the blood. Of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so that he eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon themselves. So, in a moment, what this text is saying is as we enter into this time of communion, we need to stop believers, we need to stop and repent. We need to examine our own hearts before we go to the table. If you're not yet a believer, we're so grateful that you're here, but this is a time for the believer, so let us stop and examine our own hearts. But what communion for us means this morning is that if God's love does that, that if it purchases us salvation through the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, that he will answer our prayers. So what is it? What is it this morning that we're latching on to our Savior until he answers. Let's pray. And Father, we're, we're so grateful to have such an intimate God like you. That you've not set us up and then forgot about us. That you come, that you run after, that you engage, that you in, even entertain our pleads and our offerings and our wrestling. And not only that, that you instruct us to do that, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, to keep asking. Because you're a good father that loves to give gifts to his children. That you're not going to reward our questioning and our asking and our pleading with things that will harm us, that aren't good for us. Scripture says if we ask for a fish, who's going to give us a snake? And so, Father, for my own heart and for us in this room this morning, would you forgive us for not being desperate enough? Would you forgive us for trying to be deceitful and to solve every problem that has come up in our own strength and our own power? And, Father, would you lead us into a season just of desperation that if you don't show up, God, we have, we have no plan B, we have no other option other than you doing what only you can do. And God, would you forgive us for not thinking that you can solve the problems? That we're not desperate enough and, and our faith is so, so shallow that even in our desperation, we don't run and plead with you to solve it because honestly, we don't think you can. And while we would never utter that, that is the posture of our heart in prayer. That we throw off one-off prayers because, yeah, may, maybe God will hear it and answer. But we don't wrestle with you. We don't lock on. We don't do what Jacob does and says, I will not let go till you bless me. I will not quit asking until you get out of bed. So church, this morning, what is it? What is the one thing that you're going to commit to? That you're desperate enough you have no plan B, that you have exhausted every other option that you think you could, that the Lord has brought you to a point of being alone with nowhere to go behind you, 
and impending death in front of you. What is it? So let this time of communion be a, a place for that, a place of commitment, a place of repentance, a place of pleading with the Lord. This is the first day that we are grabbing on and not letting go. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to come to you, you perfect, holy, mighty God. You still ask us to come and plead and pray and wrestle. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.